Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Our topic today is the current state of mountain towns and outdoor recreation. And as somebody who has read a lot and talked a lot about these issues, I can honestly say that in this conversation, some of the best ideas and proposals that I've ever heard are put forward for helping mountain towns and outdoor recreation survive and thrive. At our last Blister Summit, we brought together Colorado Sun reporter Jason Blevins to lead this discussion about mountain towns and outdoor recreation, and listeners of Reviewing the News will certainly know Jason's name from our Blevins Corner segment that Cody Townsend and I always do. Also in this conversation are Dara McDonald, who is the Crested Butte Town Manager, Jonathan Houck, who is a Gunnison County Commissioner, Pete Wagner, owner of Wagner Custom Skis and resident of Telluride, Colorado, and our very own Paul Forward, who, among many things, is a blister reviewer, a resident of Girdwood, Alaska, a heli guide, a doctor, and my good friend. The group discusses how small towns can serve as test zones for new and innovative policies, the impacts of an outdoor recreation-based economy, the ongoing challenge of affordable housing, ideas for new methods of funding, and more. Folks, for any of us who live in mountain towns or visit them, this is a really important conversation And if you like, you can watch the video of this conversation over on our Blister YouTube channel, or you can listen to it right here. This episode of the Blister Podcast is presented by Open Snow. Open Snow is your one-stop shop for all of the essential weather tools, allowing you to view 10-day weather forecasts for any location on Earth, read expert local analysis from their team of local forecasters, track active fires with perimeter, hotspot, and smoke forecast maps, avoid lightning with live and forecast radar, compare recent conditions and forecasts at your favorite locations, and much more. Here at Blister, we are big fans and daily users of Open Snow. And you can visit opensnow.com and upgrade to all access using the discount code BLISTER23 at checkout to save 50% off your first year. That's code BLISTER23 at opensnow.com. And now, let's talk about some of the challenges facing mountain towns and outdoor recreation And importantly, we'll also discuss a number of very compelling potential solutions, too. Here we go. My name is Jason Blevins, reporter with the Colorado Sun. I've been covering Western Slope stuff for 25 years as a news story writer, news reporter. We got Pete Wagner, owner of Wagner Skis in Telluride. Jonathan Houck, Gunnison County Commissioner. Paul Forward, Girdwood, Alaska, Heli Guide, boss, and Darren McDonald on the end there, manager of Crested Butte. So we got a couple small town businesses, a couple small community leaders. Um, one of the most interesting things that I think we've kind of chatted about is Sometimes in these small towns, we see these communities really innovate and be progressive and do things that can kind of give us a model for some of our larger issues. They're small towns. They're remote. They have to be collaborative. They have to work together. They have to be innovative. They have to be progressive on on new ideas. So I want to go down the line and we'll start with Pete. Um, Pete's, you know, longtime Telluride small business owner, makes a really good ski and how do you see small towns and small businesses, in your case, um, being able to inspire 
the larger worlds? What what can you teach? I don't know, Jeff Bezos. That's a difficult question. Um, you know, I think being part of a small community, it's really easy to communicate with everybody. And I feel like that's, you know, one of the best points of being a small business is uh, in, in a small community in particular is if you want to do something, it's easy to communicate with people and brainstorm. I feel like there's in some cases less uh, uh, roadblocks to just trying stuff. And um, so, you know, it's hard to say, can those things scale? I'm actually not sure, but I think that just the spirit of like being in a small community and, you know, just having easy access to people and being able to brainstorm and in some cases, like, you know, just try things, you know, maybe on a smaller scale and see if, you know, see if things works. That's, that's one of the takeaways that, that, that I see being a Telluride resident. Jonathan, we were just talking about some of the innovative energy policies and growth policies and the way that you can distribute some of your tax money to innovative things, incorporating Western, um, Western Colorado University into your community in different directives. You, you guys Gunnison can teach us so much. Yeah, I think one of the things that's interesting being in a, in a small community that's in a very big space, and I think that's something that often is kind of left out of the discussion, just as a, a point of reference to give you a, kind of a, a feel for Gunnison County. Gunnison County is one and a half times the size of the state of Delaware. 80% of it's federal public lands. There's only 17,000 people that live in the county. Um, we happen to be, you know, a, a a college community with Western Colorado University as a real anchor. Uh, Crested Butte Ski Resort is incredibly important in the community. But a lot of folks don't know we're the largest coal producing county in Colorado. The largest body of water in, in the state is here. The Gunnison River, we're sitting in the headwaters of the Gunnison River. It's the second largest tributary to the entire Colorado River system after the Green River. And so there's these pieces that often, when you look through a recreation lens, you forget that you know, folks live here and folks are making a living here and small businesses have an outsized uh, impact in a small community. To give you an example, when the coal mine in the northern part of the county closed, 700 people lost their jobs and it made about an inch and a half worth of, of news coverage in the Denver Post. If you put that and translated that to what that would mean if you lived in Denver, that'd be like a company in Denver leaving 12,000 people unemployed. And so businesses and what happens on the landscape and what goes on is important. And there's enough of us here to kind of have a critical mass to think of things in a new way, but there's not so many of us that we can't be innovative and creative. And so a lot of the things I look at, some of the policies, I'm, and I'm hoping Daryl will talk about some of the things that the town of Crested Butte's doing, it's really out in front and was way out in front before people were even considering things like housing issues. What we're doing around renewable energy and finding new ways to, to power buildings in a climate, as you guys have experienced, those of you who don't live here full-time or don't visit here much, you, you hit a nice little cold streak. You get a good good feel of it. But there are things that we've tried out and done here that engineers and the scientists are like, no, 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 that's not going to work. But we're small enough and determined enough. They're like, we're going to go down that path anyway. And we found some solutions and some opportunities that we've tested here on the ground. And hopefully we can export those to other communities. What we're doing here individually might not make a huge difference on the global scale, but if the influence of small communities can and small counties can have some influence that reaches out and starts affecting policy, that can be really positive. Almost an aspirational role sometimes. Paul, what you got going on in Girdwood? I'm feeling some strong imposter syndrome here with these community experts. It's just a <laughs> guy who lives in a small town. Um, uh, I really like what, what you guys have said. I think. Uh, you know, Girdwood, Alaska is a little bit different because while we are an independent community that's kind of geographically separated from the other communities in Alaska, we're technically within the municipality of Anchorage, which has a very different demographic and political kind of makeup and identity than Girdwood does. And so, uh, you know, for example, we are a sea level, essentially ski area in the subarctic, part of the world warming faster than anywhere else, in the almost faster than anywhere else on the planet. And like, I think there's a lot of inertia and Girdwood to like, you know, talk about climate change, talk about renewable energy, but the overall political climate of Alaska and Anchorage is is not really ready for that yet. And so we struggle to really have a voice in our community because we're generally drowned out. And there's even been recent attempts at 
um, specific gerrymandering to minimize Girdwood's um, kind of kind of voice and I'm not trying to be political here, but um, we struggle with it. I think you know culturally we try really hard to represent the things that we um, that we care about in Girdwood, but we're we don't really have that much of a voice uh, to, to make much difference given our current setup. Dara, I'm going to start calling you Sparky. She is leading the town of Crested Butte's push to electrify everything. No more natural gas in that town. Um, going to be the only municipality in the state that does that. Pioneering program and very likely one that will carry into much larger communities as we move away from fossil fuel. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, so I would start by saying, you know, it's my great privilege to, and I'm the luckiest person in the world to be the manager in Crested Butte because philosophically I'm very aligned with where our community's leaders are and they tend to be a little bit left to center and they tend to really, really value what they have in terms of the spirit of the community. Um, Troy Russ, our community development director is here. This year um, we completed our community compass and I think it's really, um, we have some copies if anybody's interested in this little executive summary, but to have elected leaders in our community who truly live by the values of the community and who really did a huge effort to understand those values of the community. So in short, it's being authentic. We are authentic. We are accountable. Um, our community is bold and we're connected. Right, those are the four primary values and everything else now flows down from that. So when we were able to do that and establish those values, it makes every conversation that we have now so much easier. Conversations are hard. Right? We were just talking about an affordable housing project that you know, went down in flames in Gerwood, and that happens. We see that happen all over the West. But we've created now, we have our values, and we have established a process um, that really incorporates the community and establishes what it is we're trying to achieve very early in the process so that we can build up those alignments to tackle um, these harder discussions, and a lot of the discussions we face have conflicting values, right? It might be we want to put affordable housing, we desperately need affordable housing, but that's where you know, there's some important habitat as well. And how do you tackle those conversations? And I think that's something that Crested Butte right now is doing really well, and we have a strong base for doing that, right? Crested Butte was one of the first communities, I don't know if any other communities have put limits on house sizes. That went in in the 90s in Crested Butte, right? We don't allow large homes in town, and we haven't for decades, and it has not stopped the town one bit, right? We just said no more natural gas in anything other than commercial kitchens in our community as of January 1st of this year. There's no more, and we're incentivizing people to retrofit. Right, so we're putting money, public money, behind those commitments as well. And there's a sort of a long list where we were the first community in Colorado to tax vacation rentals and put that money towards affordable housing. As a home rule community in the state of Colorado, we have a lot of authority to make up taxes, for example, or make up what we wanna do. And Crested Butte's a small enough little microcosm that we can take big risks and show others that things are possible. And it's super fun. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, two things we, I just heard. Um, conflicting values, the challenge of dealing with conflicting values, and looking at uh, your communities through the lens of recreation, which Jonathan had mentioned. We all have had a just blast this week playing around in the woods. Recreation has been pitched as the end-all, be-all economic savior of Colorado, rural Colorado. As these communities transition out of coal and extractive industry and mining, recreation is the answer. That's how we're going to build our new economies. Um, only recently are we starting to really gauge and measure the impacts of recreation, what it's doing to our wildlife, how it's impacting our ecosystems. And I, I you know, have had some good conversations with Wright River National Forest boss, largest national forest, most trafficked national forest in the country. And we're going to see some incredible mitigation on recreational impacts. Um, it's, it's, an, it's a very important part of our economy, but I think we need to start talking about what it does, what it means to our, some of our open spaces. But wanting to get you guys to riff a little bit, obviously Pete makes a living off recreation, kind of a hard um, idea to put parameters on it. But the idea of recreation as this 
beautiful, no impact savior coming in. And we're starting to maybe come to grips with that. And as we have these conversations, how do you see us changing the way we talk about recreation in a way that we can start to recognize some of the ways that it can hurt our communities? A little esoteric concept there. Let's get into that, huh? A bunch of bun hogs in the audience, too, that might not like this one. <laughs> You know, I think um, I think a lot of this has to do, do with just awareness. I mean, are you, what are you finding? Where's the data coming from in terms of impacts for recreation? Reduced elk herds, wildlife impacts. Um, you know, I live in the Eagle River Valley. We've got, you know, half, you know, and then you start to add in e-bikes that will push us even further. You start to add in crowded resorts that are pushing backcountry skiers further into um, these zones that we've never been to. The new gear that we have that is enabling us to get further and deeper into places that we've never been. And that's, and just our sheer numbers. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of us out there recreating right now, getting in the rivers. And I mean, we, we see it everywhere. So we need to reshape how we talk about recreation. And we are in these communities, these small towns are built on recreation, built on tourism and having a good time, you know, human powered, motor powered, you know, the side by side things, the marble traffic up there in your hood. I mean, we, everybody wants to go recreate and that we all should. How can we do it in a more responsible way and talk about it in a less, I don't know, effusive way about recreation how can we talk about recreation in a way that makes it you know something that we think about a little more you know i think what i see in telluride is there's some marketing dollars are shifting into how to recreate responsibly i think that's a good start you know we talking about how to live like a local trying to uh educate people about what the impacts are what how to how to be responsible in wilderness areas. And I think that's a first start. It's an interesting challenge because there has to be an educational component to it. And uh, where do you think that should come from? Lodging taxes. Jonathan, the one, Gunnison County is one of the first communities to direct its lodging taxes away from pure tourism marketing and towards mitigating impacts of all sorts of impacts. And it's a beautiful plan. Yeah, and I think what the, the challenge is, you know, often recreation communities, the recreation piece is out in front, and you don't see the other components of, of a community if you're visiting there or if you haven't spent some time there. And, and I think one of the things that makes Gunnison County interesting is that, you know, the ski area, you know, we have this great ski area, and it's a really important part of the economy, but it's not like a Breckenridge or Vail scale ski area. Uh, Western Colorado University is incredibly important, but it doesn't have the outsized influence maybe like CU does on Boulder County or, uh, you know, Colorado State does on Larimer County. Um, you know, we have oil and gas development, but it's not like Weld County where that's the thing that carries the day. And when you start to see all these different uses that touch the public land space, then you start to realize, well, where, where do we have, you know, some skin in the game? And I think one of the things that's going to be interesting to get to over time is recreationalists getting to the point where they pony up a little bit. And I'll give you an example. Ranching is incredibly uh, strong economy here in the upper Gunnison River Valley. Every single animal that a rancher puts out on the landscape with their public, you know, their grazing allotment, they pay per animal to have them on the landscape. Every person who hunts or fishes in Gunnison County pays a tax when they buy ammunition or, or, or fishing wars or, or gear like that, you know, and, and the extractive industries, oil and gas, coal, they pay royalties back to the state and to the communities in which that resource comes from. But when I unload my, my bike at a trailhead, I don't, I don't pay. When I, you know, go and, and skin, you know, up, up a peak and ski down, I don't pay for that. At what point, if we want to have the voice, the recreation voice at the table as an equal seat, how do we get that voice forward? And it's America. Money talks. And at some point, we've got to talk about how we are putting money into 
uh, in an equal way or in a way that's meaningful that starts balancing out some of these discussions. I just spent the last week in, back in Washington, D.C., working on public lands policy with other uh, c- county commissioners from across Colorado and across the West. And the outsized voice comes from agriculture, extraction, and timber. Yet you look at the economic performance of, of the outdoor industry and it's massive and it's in the billions and it's substantial and meaningful. So if we want our voice heard, we've got to look at how we kind of uh, make that, that, that same argument. And I think here in this community, we, we at least have this lens that we see all these other things that make it work. And we realize that we're part of it, of that solution and we've got to get forward with that. But the strains it's caused on housing, what it's caused on cost of living and those kind of things are real. And, and, and they're really damaging to communities, to small communities. And, you know, some of the things that Dara was speaking about that the town of Crested Butte's doing are way out in front, um, out of necessity and out of leadership. And, and I think those are the things that are going to be making a difference in, in how these communities make it over time. Yeah, charging the backpack tax, isn't that what they call it? Um, that is a hot topic. Outdoor industry pays a lot of money in tariffs, and they feel as though that is, is their economic contribution. And in many ways, that money should maybe be reshifted and reallocated in a way that goes back into public lands or some of those impacts. Paul, you got any thoughts on how we can talk differently about recreation? Yeah, a little bit. Um, so first of all, I want to echo what, what you just said about the you know the hunting and ammunition side of it. So I sit on board of directors for two hunting organizations. One that's one's kind of a species-specific conservation organization. And whenever I talk to them about issues that are important to me that aren't necessarily on their radar about habitat, climate, things like that, they're very quick to point out that what they see as my people aren't paying their fair share. And so I, I would echo that for sure. That's a, definitely a perception amongst a lot of outdoor users in our country that those of us that are skiing and biking and kayaking aren't, aren't anteing up our share to protect the places that we care about. So I think that I think there is room for improvement there. I would say um, the you know, not speaking so much about Girdwood in a small town, but <clears throat> zooming out to Alaska itself, you know, we're really fortunate to have these vast expanses of some of the last true, in my opinion, wilderness left on the planet, right? And some of those places are really, really special to me. And I have just in, I'm 43 years old, just in my short lifetime, I've seen massive changes in like, you know, the amount of users in certain areas like the Brooks Range or the Kenai Peninsula, places like that, um, that are you know, people should go, you should go there. It's amazing. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and so there's a downside to it. It has an impact. You know, we're, we're inadvertently affecting animals and we're affecting the indigenous people. And that's my other world as I work as a physician in a tribal healthcare system. So I talk to people every day about their experiences with uh, people coming as tourists to the place that is their place. Um, on the other hand, you know, when people experience like, for example, the Arctic for the first time, like they care about it. And so, you know, the recreation aspect also engenders a lot of care for those places. And so it's, it's kind of, you know, if there was a pack raft on every river in the Arctic, would I be sad? Yes. But if all those people were to come to the table to protect Anwar, then I'd say, well, it's worth it. That's a great point. Everybody who recreates outside is going to be the next public lands advocate, you know, in their next generation. Every young person that is introduced to what we know and what we love and we know how transformational and powerful it can be could be the next person that, you know, joins us in the fight to, you know, protect public access and public lands. Huge role that recreation plays. Yeah. So I think um, it's a challenge, right? I'm about to go down the Grand Canyon again, taking my 12-year-old. It's going to be amazing. We're going to have an awesome 16 days in the canyon. And I am so grateful. It is so hard to get a permit. I'm so grateful there's a permit system on that river um, because it protects it, too. And I think we are definitely going to be faced as um, community leaders in the next decade with how do we temper use in certain highly impacted areas. And right, we're seeing it, right? If you go to Zion, now you have to get a permit to hike the Narrows. You have to take a bus to get up to the Maroon Bells, right? We're starting to try and balance that access and equitable access with protecting the most loved, overloved areas. And I think it's going to be a challenge. And it's amazing that people want to be there and can get there. But how do we balance that? And so again, I think it's that competing values I mean, as a community, we're going to continue to have conversations about, you know, our, our seven kingdoms, <laughs> as our former forest manager called it. Um, how do we protect the Slate River in the summer? Because, you know, there are Saturdays when it is a cloud of dust 
And that's not a good experience for anyone. It's terrible for the environment. But how do we approach that? How do we manage that going forward? It's going to be an ongoing situation. I'm a little bit disappointed that Commissioner Houck didn't talk a little bit about the great work we've done in Gunnison County on stewardship. And while it was started in Crested Butte, the, the county really picked that up and went with it. We started with the Crested Butte Conservation Corps, which was Simba, our mountain biking association. And they've started, they just took it up and, and ran with it and raised money. And we have a crew out there in the summers now. And then Gunnison County picked it up and it's just pounded forward. We've got, uh, I don't know how many crews now and, and yep, whatnot. Four, four different crews. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and partnering with the National Forest Foundation to find the money to build bathrooms and improve trailheads. And, you know, it's whether you focus everybody on the most um, popular areas and leave the rest. Don't, don't talk about the rest or, or what. You know, I think we're all in the midst of those conversations and understanding how we um, keep it really special, but let people experience it. And that's a fine line. And I think it's going to be that, that challenging conversation for a while. And for years, we've been just like, Come have fun, just literally willy-nilly. Just go recreate and enjoy as everything that you always want to do. Anywhere, anytime, do it. And I, that is, there is no way that we can sustain that anymore, especially in the White River where I live. It is crowded. Like, you just cannot go and do that. So we have programs in the White River where, you know, you need to line up and get your backpacking permit, not just a river permit. It's a backpacking permit to go into the Conundrum Hot Springs area and all that stuff, you know, snowmass boulders. Um, is that the answer? We're going to do reservations? <laughs> yeah, I have real concerns about equity. I mean, I am an avid rec.gov user to get my campgrounds, you know, to take my family out. And I have the luxury of being able to sit at a laptop at 8 in the morning and press that button. Or maybe two laptops, right? Maybe my husband's on a laptop, too. And that is not fair. It is not okay. <laughs> you know, for, not everybody has that luxury. And those permits are gone in a moment, right? And so I think we have a long way to go to solve that problem. Yeah, and I think there's I think there's a real interesting piece that whether it's programs that are put together, whether it's coalitions of people, whether it's the industry, there, there's a huge element about the pressures that we're feeling that we don't talk about. And it's, and it's really a personal responsibility issue, you know, and, you know, a lot of us are drawn to wild and, and places and, and these kind of experiences and have been for a long time because they feel something deep inside of us. It's meaningful and important whether you're boating or skiing or climbing or biking. And, you know, we, we are also now where we have to publicize everything. Every, you know, everyone has to see it. You have to post it. You have to know it. And, and I think that, you know, some of the changes that are going to happen, you know, will be led by people at a personal level not feeling the need to just tell where every nook and cranny is, you know. And part of what makes the experience really amazing and unique is not how many people saw it from your photo or from your description, but, you know, are they having that experience? And we've really, we've really sanitized the outdoor experience. It's, it's really, it's really different. And I think there's, there's part of that. And I don't know what the answer is, but I think there's a part of it that's very personal. And we've got to remember that, you know, uh, the experience can't always be a commodity and that, and that balancing that's getting harder and harder and harder. And the pressures are really felt, especially on the landscape and in the places uh, where these experiences are happening. It's, it's, it's hard. And that balance, cause I, I don't want anyone to not have the opportunities that I've had and had the experiences I had They're They were life-changing. They're transformational. Watch my kids grow up and have those experiences but how do you temper that with a sense of, of stewardship and responsibility? And I think if, if we really want to make quick gains, government doesn't make quick gains. We move slowly. <laughs> but personal choices can happen quickly. They can happen like that. And I think there's got to be some self-reflection about the impacts we're causing on communities, landscape, wildlife, water quality, air quality, those kind of things. Um, we all get instantly to make personal decisions about those. And, and I think that's a place where part of the reckoning has to happen as well. Sure. Sanitizing the recreational experience, making people think that it's Disneyland. That's a good segue into just a little bit shitty. <laughs> <laughs> this is a topic. Dara brought this up the other day. Um, in the past couple years, we have seen an incredible inflow of people to our mountain towns. It has been 
just the most transformational experience in the past two years. Mountain towns have felt pressures that they have not felt, you know, ever. It's unbelievable. And lots of new people coming to town. Why wouldn't they want to come to these towns? These towns are awesome. Um, we should make it a little bit shitty so that not everybody wants to come here. You know, like, just, just sand the rough edges a little bit. You know, like, don't sand the rough edges. Um, so if we can keep things just shitty enough, we can maybe not be welcoming to everybody. And Dara, Dara said it most beautifully. It's like, it's a, it's a thinking about being welcoming and being accommodating. Like, you, we, we need to accommodate visitors. There's a lot of people coming to these towns and need to be accommodating. But that welcome mat doesn't need to be a mile wide and heated. You know, like, we need to, you know, we could work out some ways. So let's go down the line on how we can make our towns just a little more shitty. <laughs> I'll start. So shitty enough. <laughs> I love this. This came out of a Colorado Association of Ski Towns um, meeting a couple meetings ago. One of the um, uh, members, um, council member from Park City, Utah, and just it just you know, there's always a venting component to these meetings, right? When uh, we all get together in our in our little uh, myopic uh, world, and she was just expressing the frustration of the impact on Park City, and since Vale's come in, and, and now they have Altera too, and um, just that was she just blurted that out at one point. We just we just our new motto should be keep it a little shitty, um, because we've done such a good job of polishing our rough edges. And this is something we talked a lot about during our compass process um, last year. And I remember, and God bless, I started my planning career in Breckenridge, love Breckenridge, but we were there for a climate conference this fall. And good grief, the flowers. Oh my God, every light post has the most beautiful display of flowers. And just the energy we put into making that so beautiful and welcoming. And where does it get us? And what kind of level of expectation of service are we setting? You know, it's hard to live at 9,000 feet. And we should keep it a little bit hard, right? Because we cannot be all things to all people. I can't hire enough plow drivers right now. Your streets are going to be a little shitty, right? And deal with it. There are going to be big potholes. We're going to get freeze-thaw cycles. You don't live in Denver anymore, right? You live here now. And that's okay. And so drawing that line and focusing our energies on the things that are really meaningful and most impactful for our actual citizens and people who work here, while still being accommodating to our guests and our wonderful um, second homeowner community who do a lot for this community. But we can't make a pickleball court for everyone, right? We can't do that. We got to draw the line somewhere. And it might be pickleball. I'm not sure. But, you know, it, it, does that make sense? <laughs> I emailed someone about a pickleball court See? Today. Pickleball. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I've, I've been kicking around that one. We got to figure <laughs> out a way to um, just not make it so easy for folks to be like, oh, my God, I love this town. Let's Let's move here. I mean... They, they are more than welcome. Obviously, they're, they're, they can be great community members, but they need to know right up front, here's how much snow you're going to end up shoveling if you live in, you know, this end of the valley. Wow. Here's, you know, here's what these roads are going to look like. You're not going to have school buses. You know, there is no school buses. I will say living in Gunnison, you know, having, you know, good streaks of, you know, 15, 20 below, that helps. And, you know, two or three weeks where it doesn't go above 32, that that's... Tends to temper things a little bit, but climate change. So we'll see how that stays. And I think understanding the impact of, um, you know, the wealth that's coming into the community is really important. And it's not poorly intended on the part of someone who's building a 7,000 square foot home that then needs gardeners and roof shovelers and plow drivers to accommodate that. Um, but they got to understand that it's really hard for us to accommodate that. So you got to temper those expectations. And at the same time, how do we keep it real and livable um, for the folks that are doing those jobs, right? So that they're not having to go 30 plus miles, um, spend their time 
traveling back and forth to do those jobs because they also want to be here to ski, right? Yeah. Um, it behooves us to ever talk about mountain communities and not talk about housing for a second. Then we'll open it up for questions. Um, we've seen all kinds of money coming in. Um, this is a once in a generational inflow of federal and state dollars that will be coming towards affordable housing in mountain communities. Um, it's never been more acute and it's never been a higher priority at a state level. We got a governor who's saying, Hey, let's, I'm going to make it, make it easier to build density and possibly supersede some of that local control. And maybe that, that some of the values that Darrow was talking about in the, in the Crested Butte compass. Um, so how do we get this done? This needs to happen. Pete lives in a hood and Telluride where they had this great plan, created zoning, found a spot right next to the airport, lawsuit, killed it. Um, so you could go down the line. There's, every time a proposal comes up, it, there's a lot of reasons why it shouldn't happen. Um, but it's so acute, it needs to happen. We need to find a way. We need two markets for housing. We need, you know, like people that buy deed-restricted and then people that buy a free market. And how do we keep the deed restricted from just maintaining a lower middle class forever while everybody else makes $10,000 a month while they sleep because of depreciation for their homes? This is, this is one of the most complicated, complex issues, and you can do an entire eight-hour panel on this. But real quick, ideas. What is, what, how about this? What's working? Where do you see where do you see progress on housing and fixing this? Because it is a bear of an issue. <laughs> I, I'll start. I mean, one of, one of the things that's challenging is just the cost. Um, you know, to build in the Gunnison Valley, you know, it, it's north of six seven hundred dollars a square foot to build, and when you have a limited pool. Uh, of talented uh, construction workers in your community, and they're going to have to choose between building homes at $750 a square foot or affordable housing units that have to come in at $250, $300 a square foot. There's going to be no, there's going to be no choice there because they're trying to live here too. Um, one, of, one of the things it's really going to take is, is land and land's expensive and there's not much of it. And you heard me speak earlier, you know, Gunnison County's 80% federal public lands, 2% state uh, public lands. And so that leaves a small percentage, but we've been conserving land because that's important too for wildlife, for ranching. So we're putting stuff in permanent conservation easements, which is good. Uh, but at the same time, it's just driving up the cost. And at some point, local communities are going to be priced out. And I think that's the thing that we've really got to deal with. And I think the thing that's going to push it is when people, you know, especially people who visit and are second homeowners and don't get any reliable ability to go out for a meal or have a home cleaned or, you know, have a car repair done. I mean, those are real issues and those things are coming. And, and I've really tried to expand the conversation too. It's not mountain towns anymore. You know, it, it, there was a time when, you know, Carbondale or Basalt or Salida or Buena Vista or Moab, they were gritty little towns. They were a little shitty on the edges. Gunnison's changing, you know, this, you know, the, it, it, it's just flowing, you know, Go to go to a you know go to Dolores go to Bluff Utah I mean these places are changing as quick as any mountain town and part of it is, is we will never be able to build our way out of the situation but we are going to have to maintain that's one of the most important things maintain the housing that we have and I think oftentimes we get focused on build 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 we got to find more land we got to get more units but we're losing and a lot of it is what we're losing is to a short term rental market. We're losing it to people who are buying investment properties. Um, and Colorado, at least, we have some really hard things to get past with the Taxpayer Bill of Rights and some and, and things that are in statute that are very hard for us at the municipal level, at the county level to get past. And so one of the big things it's going to have to take is some substantial change around what we can do legally and not living in the shadow of the front range. And that's the hardest thing about this state. You know, 85% of the state's population lives east of the divide. 85% of the resources like water and space are over here. 
And boy, the tug of war between those two, I don't see any end to that in sight. And so whether it's Crested Butte, Gunnison, Gunnison County, we're, we're scrambling and flying under the radar and doing the things that we can do and hopefully having an influence on other communities. But I'm, I'm genuinely scared for what the future looks like for, for communities like ours. I've got a question. So it seems like there's an opportunity to uh, just do really uh, in-depth planning, sort of urban design to these more rural landscapes. And it's tricky. Is How do you think about you know, long-term planning, like from a commissioner level, can you, it seems like everything's so reactive now yep. since, you know, we're seeing such a big boom of, of uh, population and whatnot in the Western Slope. How, how, what, what, what's your perspective of just, you know, long-term planning? Yeah, I mean, for us, the most important that we're doing in Gunnison County is, is making sure that we have, density is part of the solution. It's not gonna look urban, but it's gonna be denser than we're used to. Um, Crested Butte, of all the towns, has the densest population of, of any of the towns, more dense than Gunnison. Um, and so we, at the county level, we are promoting, and our what we're doing with our land use is promoting development in and around the towns because things have to be on utilities. They have to be connected to municipal water. They have to be connected to wastewater treatment plants. And so part of it is not letting it sprawl out. But the other part is there's only so much water. There's only so much land. Uh, one of your commissioners and I were just talking that the town of Norwood, you know, great. Okay, let's build dense in Norwood. Norwood's going to run out of water in 20 years with the population they have right now. So even if they threw out all of the zoning and said, we're going to let it be as dense as possible, there's limits. And part of it is going to be not everyone's going to get to live in the mountains. Yeah, I would say it will be interesting to see what actually comes out in writing from the governor, right? Right now... It, it's a little bit of a sledgehammer, you know, and I think every community in Colorado with the home rule that we have in this state, um, we've all been struggling with this for a while, at least in the resort communities, and we've all come up with our unique solutions um, that fit. And so I think it's more of a scalpel that's needed. Um, I would agree with Commissioner Hauk, money. We, we need money. Um, more than anything, because the cost of land is so high here that to acquire, we're cleaning up a dump that's going to cost, uh, I mean, we're, we're millions and millions of dollars in because it's the only land that we have in town to do a sizable development. And we haven't, we haven't there's no foundation in the ground, and we are millions of, of dollars down the road, right? It's hard. And we, we did get, we have a couple million from the state to do that. But this project's going to be ridiculously expensive and require a huge amount of subsidy. And it is as dense as our community can handle right now. And I think the other thing we struggle with is, is uh, where are we going? What's the long-term goal of building more housing, right? We know we have an immediate crisis, an immediate need, but what begets more need, right? When I look at Breckenridge. Breckenridge, when I moved there, when I lived there, had one stoplight, right? And, and now it's a freeway <laughs> from Frisco to Breck. And they have done an incredible job of building housing. Aspen, same thing. Incredible thousands of affordable housing units. And they just need more. And I just, I think we struggle, I struggle a lot with understanding where we're going. Absolutely, there's a need. Absolutely, we need to build. We need to deed restrict more of the existing homes. We need to do all of those things. But how, where, where does it end um, is, is a big question for me, for, I think, for our community. Um, we love Crested Butte because it's Crested Butte. Abs is going to change. Yes, 100%. It's absolutely going to look different now in 20 years than it does right now. Is it gonna look like downtown Denver? Is it gonna look like Telluride? Is it still gonna feel like Crested Butte? Right, I have an absolute charge to make it still feel like Crested Butte, but it's gonna be different. And so threading that needle is really challenging. And I, you know, my people that came before me, 25% of the homes in Crested Butte are deed restricted. It's, it's an amazing ratio, but we're still overwhelmed. We were a tiny little town, <laughs> right? So it's a huge problem, and, it, and no one solved it. We're going to do it, though, Troy. 
yeah, we're going to do it. But but to be to be more concise, back to your question and about like what and, and to Daryl, where's the end? Water is the end. That's that is the thing. That's the thing that's going to define it all. And and backing into it from that. And I think the other part is just, you know. Again, it's this, you know, we've, we've got this wealth disparity in this country and everyone wants to own something and owning something is part of the problem. Like there, there's the ability for people to enjoy the mountains, enjoy the desert, enjoy these wild spaces. The, the problems are coming because everyone wants to own part of it. They have to possess part of it. And it, it, is, the, is the experience enough? For a lot of people, no, I want to own part of it too. That inherent tug of war at some point is going to break communities. And it's breaking communities right now. And I think that's, you know, something to put in perspective. When we send out our property tax assessments in Gunnison County every year, at this point, 64% of every property valuation goes to an address outside of Gunnison County. And I would say among resort communities, we might be on a little bit of the lower end. Oh, yeah. They aspire for 60%. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's 40% yep. local out. Yeah. It has been to 95. Yeah. It's, and it's, you know? yeah. And it's, it's, it is. Well, yeah, this is hard. <laughs> um, so we wanted to do this and give uh, plenty of time for folks to ask questions. So it's your turn. How do we get more younger people in the, uh, into local politics? How can we inspire younger generations to, to join Jonathan and Dara's not a politician, but Dara's, Dara's bosses. Um, so I would say, you know, I think it's incumbent on local government to try, right, to, to reach out as best we can. Part of what we're trying to do with our new framework for outreach is frame that question really early on of how we're going to, um, what our public process is going to look like for whatever the challenges that we're facing. So if it's a, a housing project, for example, an affordable housing project, we want to be intentional about including the voices of those who will live there potentially or whose friends will live there and find a way to meet them and work with their schedules. And we've done some of that. We've been able to like have a meeting on the community compass at the stash, right? And have Kylina be able to pay her employees to be there to, so we can hear them. Um, and I think there's a lot of opportunity for that, but we, ha it's a, it's, we have to be intentional about making that space and deliberately reaching out to the people who are most impacted by the various decisions that are being made at the local government level. Um, there's always a question about how much our elected officials are paid at the local government level, again, I think there's a balance there. It shouldn't be, a, being a town council person shouldn't be a career. There's something really beautiful about local small town democracy um, and not having it be a, a, a highly paid position. At the same time, I remember years ago, someone would be like, I just want to be paid enough to pay my babysitter so I can be at this meeting, right? I mean, that's fair. That's, and I think Crested Butte continues to find that balance. And we're lucky right now. We have people in sort of every decade of their adult life serving on our town council. But it's, that's the exception. Absolutely. I'd say just on a very pragmatic level, one of the good things that came out of the COVID was the, the, the entry of Zoom meetings or online meetings. And, you know, in our in Girdwood, we recently had a, a controversial housing development and uh, it was just everybody in the community knew about it. Everybody got the link and people turned out and the representative paid attention. And we could do that from our work or from our home or while we're taking care of our kids. And so I think just a simple pragmatic step is to put it all online. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think part of it too is, um, you know, I got involved in local government here when I was younger and I had to make a conscious decision to, I wasn't going to ski or bike as much as I wanted to. You know, I had two young kids. And I, the only space I had to give up was my time. And that's, that's part of the bargain too. So it kind of goes both ways. The other part too is once folks are elected, it's important for me. I mean, I have with the other two commissioners, the three of us get to appoint people to boards, to commissions and putting people on boards and commissions that represents the diversity of the community, you know, to have people on a planning commission that are housing insecure, you know, that was a compelling argument to hear, I should be on your planning commission making land use decisions because I'm housing insecure. Because the easy bet is, well, so-and-so owns a construction company. So-and-so is a developer. They know all about land use. We should put them on. A lot of it is once people get to those positions of decision making, holding, holding us accountable that we are actually 
putting people and placing people in opportunities on boards and commissions to truly represent the community. And that's hard. And, and a lot of it too is just, and technology, the Zoom piece, one of the good benefits of that is breaking down barriers of ac- access and entry. And, you know, Board of County Commissioners, we meet Tuesdays at 8.30 in the morning. Yeah, not, not a lot of workers showing up to tell us what they feel. But we're getting out in the community. We're doing town halls. We're doing evening meetings for, for public hearings that are essential so people can participate in the evenings. And going and meeting people where they are. And, and that's, that's a, you know, the, 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 the ability to do that is incumbent upon the people who are the decision makers. But it's hard. It's, it's, it's hard to do. And I, it, it was painful to be a younger person on the town board in Gunnison. You know, I was referred to as the kid, you know, for, for years and it sucked. It was, it was terrible. How about when you just went back, got back from DC with the, with Oh the, man, I feel young going to DC, yeah, you know, you do. <laughs> meet with senators and stuff. I'm like, wow, I'm young. <laughs> That's funny. Um, shifting political landscapes in Gunnison County. Um, and how has that impacted, uh, more modern day decisions? So yes, because any development where lots are 35 acres or larger, someone can subdivide a huge chunk of land into as long as lots 35 acres or larger, the county, we issue the building permit, the driveway permit and the septic permit, but the ability. And so that's why you see in in a lot of mountain communities, you see these large acre subdivisions. Anything smaller than that gets regulated by the county to a subdivision process. But in the 80s here, so my wife grew up here. You know, she grew up here in the 70s and, and lived here through the mid-80s before her family left. And at that time, that was a time where any business was a good business. And Gunnison was in the same place. You know, I remember sitting in a public hearing when they wanted to bring the Sonic in. And, you know, like, oh, it doesn't meet our setback. We'll give you a variance. Oh, it doesn't meet our light code. We'll give you a variance because it was money. And when your town is just up on a highway and you don't see anyone stopping, you'll do anything to keep it viable. And that's revenue. And, and we make often bad short-term decisions, you know, that have long-term impacts. From a Leadville resident where they have a sticker that says, keep Leadville shitty. Love it. Um, we're going to see how many times I can say that word. <laughs> um, have you seen any innovative funding mechanisms and tools for smaller communities to help them weather some of the these pressures that we've been talking about. Yeah, so housing in particular, so Leadville is one of those handful of towns left in Colorado that's uh, still statutory. Um, so you have less tools, right? You can't make up taxes and get your voters to approve them. You're stuck with whatever the state enables you to do. So that's a limitation that's unique to like Leadville, Salida, and I don't know, four other cities. Um, so you should work on that first. But, right, so we have um, a variety of methods to do that. Um, Housing authorities have the ability to put a tax question out there locally. Property tax up to a certain number of mills, uh, sales tax up to 1%, I think. They have the authority under the state to do. Um, We do, we obviously tax short-term rentals at 7%. Um, I think URAE taxes at 15%. They just passed that. Crazy. Um, But they really didn't want them, right? So... They're, yeah, if you're renting a place in URA, you're, you're paying a lot right now um, to do that in their taxes to go to affordable housing. A lot, there are several counties um, in Colorado that have taxes, sales taxes or property taxes that are dedicated to affordable housing. Summit County has one. Breckenridge has their own. That's how they've been able to build so many units because um, having that tax base to leverage in public-private partnerships is amazing, especially if you can get bonding authority um, so that you can issue debt and use those tax revenues to pay that off over time. You can get a lot done. Um, those are the ones that come to mind for me. Yeah, I, I would say there's the, the, the one that's kind of the, the ship is kind of sailing for a lot of communities that the COVID money was substantial, but most communities were so far behind, whether it was in roads or equipment or maintenance, they spent it. They kind of sprinkled it like a little bit of pixie dust. We're going to buy a, you know, we're going to buy a road grader here and we're going to pave that road there. And we're going to do that. Gunnison County, we took our, our initial allotment was $3.2 million dollars. We got another $5.1 million. We put that together. We're actually building a deed-restricted rental housing development in Gunnison 
that we will continue to own. And our goal is then to use the revenue of that one-time infusion of money, use what we make in rent. It's going to be deed restricted for the workforce, but that's going to become a dedicated revenue stream that we can continue year after year to take that money and leverage that and put that in towards housing. The other place, and I've been beating this drum for a couple of years in Denver, and I'm not finding a lot of legislators that are excited to take this on, but this could be a change. In Colorado, the way property tax is assessed is set in statute. And so commercial properties and industrial properties and vacant land is charged at 20, the, the tax rate is 29%. Residential floats. So right now it's right about 7%. I think it is a very worthwhile endeavor that we go back in and basically take every short-term rental in the state of Colorado and unless it is your full-time permanent residence, whether it is, if it is not the residence at which you pay your state and federal tax and you have a short-term rental, you tax it at commercial rate. So 7% versus 29%. And then counties would, because we run on property tax, towns run on sales tax, but that would be a permanent revenue source. Some percentage of that difference between the two, that becomes the money that goes to housing. Because I think whether you're a municipality or a county, Money is what you need. Money is how you get things done. And I think it is more than fair to say to someone, you own a property that you don't live in and you are using it like a hotel. That means you need more law enforcement that oftentimes creates more trash, more uses of, of the utilities, those kind of things. You're going to pay the same that a hotel pays. And that difference, that 22% difference between 7 and 29%, a chunk of that could easily be dedicated to housing issues. And there's not a lot of people, you know, from, you know, it would require the state legislature to do it and the governor to sign it as a law. And I think the appetite for that's growing, but there's a lot of hesitancy. I haven't found a lot of people said, sign me up. I want to sponsor that bill. Yeah. I think the other one that's floating around out there that we we're talking about at CAST at the Colorado Association of Ski Towns has to go back to Tabor, and that's the RET, the real estate transfer tax that I think, what, 12 communities in Colorado had enacted, including Crested Butte and Mount Crested Butte, uh, prior to Tabor. Tabor outlawed it. You can't do it anymore. And I think we, um, so in Crested Butte, it's 3% of every real estate transaction in the town, and that generates real money. Um, it, it ebbs and flows. It is not. It is not a property tax. It's not a steady. So it, that, it goes up and down depending on the market. Um, but it is significant money. We've used that um, largely for open space. At least half of it can only be used to acquire open space. So, you know, back when Trappers was originally, I think Trappers was originally on the market for like three million back in the day. Like it's nothing now, right? We could have bought it if we had money, but we didn't have any money then. Um, and so that's one where there's a lot of rumblings about, and that has to be locally approved by the voters to tax themselves, right? That's Colorado. No one wants to change that. But that could generate real money, and it's, based, it's tied to, again, that increasing land value, which is making it so hard to live in our communities or to build new affordable housing. So that's one that I, that's a huge lift to change anything in Tabor. It requires a vote of the people all across the state. So I don't know how realistic it is, but that would be a game changer if that could happen as well. And the other, the other statewide piece is if we could reform Tabor. And, and for those of you who aren't familiar, in Colorado, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights passed in 1992, basically says that Colorado's economy gets capped at, at its annual growth. And anything beyond that has to be refunded back to the taxpayers. So in theory, that sounds great. Lots of people voted for it. This past year, everyone in Colorado who was a taxpayer got a $750 check. That's the anomaly. Typically, when there is a state surplus, what you end up getting is a credit of $20, $30, $40, $50. Not enough for two people to go to dinner and have some drinks. But you take 5.5 million people's worth of that and pull that together, we could fund K-12 education, higher ed, and fix all the roads in the state immediately. And if we did that at the local level... One of the costs of living that's high in these communities is we support things like education. We support our schools. So every time the school district comes by and says, we need some more money because the state's not funding us at a level we need, we pass those things. So that increases your property tax. It costs, you know, there's sales tax initiatives to pay for things that the state doesn't. If we could gut Tabor in half, I love the part of Tabor that says, hey, if your community wants to raise your sales tax to build a rec center, vote on it. It should pass. That's good. But the ratchet down effect has basically said, Colorado, you're an economic powerhouse and the citizens don't get to enjoy the benefit of that. 
And way, the way they dole it out in small amounts to each individual person in the state doesn't do much. The collective power of pulling that together could be a game changer for this state. Yep, we're done. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> that was awesome. Um, appreciate it. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Jason Blevins for leading the conversation. Thanks to Dara McDonald and Jonathan Hauk and Pete Wagner and Paul Forward for offering their perspectives and insights on these topics. And thanks to you for listening to these things, thinking through them, and figuring out how you can be part of the solution. I also want to say thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And next week here on the Blister Podcast, we will be back with reviewing the news. So if you have any topics or Mountain Town advice questions that you would like Cody and me to discuss, you can email those in at info at blisterreview.com or send us a DM on social media. And then this next Monday, we'll review some news again with Cody. All right, everybody, take good care, and we will talk to you again real soon.